Come, gracious God, now into your presence. We draw near to you and pray that you will draw near to us. We ask, Lord, that we might rejoice in the good news of the gospel. And we do pray your blessing on those who would want to be with us but can't be here today. Think of uh, Gary and Jackie and pray that you'll be with them. Comfort them with your presence, we pray. And grant that uh, everything will go well tomorrow. We commit them to you. And we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing number 53. Number 53. All glory and praise to the Lamb that was slain, who has borne all our sins and cleansed every stain. Hallelujah. Thine the glory. Well, let's hear God's word together. Please turn with me in the Bibles to the church Bibles or your own Bible to the book of Leviticus. Sorry, to the uh, Gospel of Luke. I'm getting ahead of myself. It's Leviticus this evening. 
the Gospel of Luke and chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 and reading the first 11 verses. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep, and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net brake. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. And so also was James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his precious, infallible word. Amen. We're going to sing hymn number 124. Not one that we sing that often, but a lovely hymn. Or perhaps I'm misrepresenting you. Perhaps you do sing it often. But not when we sing that often, I don't think. I greet thee who my sure redeemer art my only trust and saviour of my heart, who pain didst undergo for my poor sake, I pray thee from our hearts all cares to take. Number 124. <clears throat>
Let us come to God in prayer again. Thou art the King of mercy and of grace, reigning omnipotent in every place. Oh Lord, what a comfort to our hearts to be able to sing those words and what a greater comfort to truly believe them that you, the omnipotent God of heaven and earth, creator and sustainer of all things, are yet a God of mercy and of grace. We acknowledge your sovereignty as we come before you this morning. We bow ourselves down before you and we worship you because you are worthy to receive our worship. And one day, the whole earth will acknowledge you. And yet, Lord, we live in a time when it seems, in our land at least, that so few acknowledge you. We thank you that we are here. We thank you for the grace that brings us here. But we do long, Lord, that others should join with us. We long for the people in the houses round about this building who are going on as if they have no fear of facing God because they don't. And yet one day they will be brought face to face with you. Oh, help us to be those that reach out. Perhaps these little booklets we may be able to give people that may turn their thoughts to heavenly things. Lord, we desperately need your blessing upon our land. How it breaks our hearts to read so often of the craziness that exists in government in our land. The, the madness of the, the laws that they're seeking to bring in. The foolishness of tampering with the created order and thinking that men can change what God has set in place. Oh, it grieves us, Lord. The casual disregard of law in the highest places. Lord, we're humbled before you on behalf of our nation. We bow in repentance. We pray for your grace upon us, O Lord, in these days that you would raise up in high office those who are men and women of honesty and integrity, who are wise to acknowledge God and to walk in his ways. Lord, this seems so far beyond the realms of possibility that some would laugh at us for even thinking like that. But, but you can do these things, Lord. We believe that you can do great things for our nation. And we believe it because we have seen it in our history. We have seen you working mightily in our land. Oh, Lord, do it again, we pray. Come again in the power of your Spirit. Pour out your Spirit upon our churches. Bring your people to repentance before you. And work powerfully in our day, we pray. How we thank you, Lord, for 
every place where the gospel is preached faithfully today. We thank you that there are in our land churches with those who are your faithful, loyal, true people praying and joining together to worship you. And we thank you that this is still allowed in our land, but we have no great optimism that that will stay the case in years to come. And Lord, we know that we are facing days when ministers of the gospel and leaders of churches will have to take decisions to stand against laws which are contrary to your laws. Lord, we pray for grace and mercy and strength for those who are leaders in the churches that they may speak plainly the truth in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon Great Britain, we pray. Even as we come to this time of celebration, we thank you for our Queen and for her faithful service to this land and to you. We pray that you will give her the grace and the strength that she needs over these coming days to take the part that she should take. But Lord, how we pray that in the future you will yet maintain integrity in the royal family and you will turn them to you. Oh, Lord, thank you for our queen, but keep her, we pray, in your grace and help us as we look to the future. And Lord, as we come before you too, we we want to pray for ourselves. We want to pray for those in our churches and in this church who particularly need your help at this time. We want to pray for comfort for those who sorrow. We want to pray for strengthening for those who are ill. We want to pray for wisdom for medical practitioners as they conduct operations and, uh, and agree treatments. But above all, we want to trust you to keep us and to be with us and to bless us. Oh, Lord, draw near Jackie, we pray, and Gary and the family at this time. And let them know your blessed presence and the warmth of your love to them as they face tomorrow. Be with them, we pray. And then, Lord, we lift our eyes further into this sad and damaged world. We think of the people of Ukraine who are under attack. We think of the people of Myanmar who are facing a dreadful internal conflict when, where terrible things are happening. And, oh, Lord, how we pray for orphan children that they're being cared for by Christian men and women. How we thank you for them. But keep them safe, Lord, we pray. Draw near to them. And be with Christian pastors in the Ukraine as they seek to continue to worship you and to lead worship and as they continue to preach the gospel in the most difficult of circumstances. Lord, we pray for an end to these conflicts. It seems beyond the wit of 
politicians to bring an end. Lord, you can step in. You can bring an end. And we pray that you would graciously hear our prayers for that and bring peace to our troubled world, we pray. And now, Lord, draw near to us. So we look at a passage of Scripture that would be well known to many of us. Grant that it will yet speak to us again and that we will take it to our hearts and that we will obey its teaching as we serve you in our communities. So hear these our prayers and grant us your blessing. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Hymn number 480. Now may the gospel's conquering power be felt by all assembled here. So shall this prove a joyful hour and God's own arm of strength appear. Number 480. Well, please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke and 
chapter 5. And uh, this account, which is headed in the church Bible anyway, the call of the first disciples. And as we come to this passage, we find the Lord Jesus beginning to do what he'd promised to do at the end of chapter 4. In chapter 4 and verse 43, we read, He said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for there I am sent. So Luke has been taking us through a time when the Lord Jesus came to his own hometown, Nazareth, preached in the synagogue, stated that these things that he had read to them from the prophet Isaiah were now being fulfilled. And they cast him out, and they would have killed him. But he walked straight through them, and from there he had gone down into um, other parts of the country, or it may have been up, who knows, and uh, he'd come eventually into the area of Galilee, and uh, near to the lake, which Luke calls Gennesaret, uh, but it's the Sea of Galilee in the other Gospels, and uh, Gennesaret really refers to the whole land area around it, leading down to the lake. And uh, it's here that we find the Lord Jesus now. Um, this whole area around Capernaum, uh, on the side of the, the lake, was where his early ministry was conducted. And uh, it was from the small city of Bethsaida, uh, not far from there, that Peter and John hailed. And so it's probable that what we're reading about here took place around that little city. Um, and it was here that Jesus began to call those who would be his first disciples. It's quite a word, isn't it? Disciples. Those who heard his teaching, believed that it was true, and determined that they would follow after him. That he was the one now that they would follow. And really, we're only going to think about this in, uh, with two two headings, but there'll be several subheadings. So the two headings are, first of all, how do people become disciples? How do people become disciples? And secondly, what do disciples do? How do people become disciples? And what do disciples do? Now I'm conscious that it may be that many of you here think that you are disciples. But I want you to be open-minded. I want you to think again about what God's Word says this morning. And, and at the end of this morning, I want you to be able to say to yourself, yes, I am a disciple on that basis. Not because of what you've learned in the past, but because of what you hear today. Because actually this whole picture that Luke draws for us here, and we remember that, uh, that Luke was a physician and a historian, and he's trying to draw together from first-hand accounts, exactly how the ministry of the Lord Jesus developed. And in the course of doing that, although he doesn't explicitly keep pointing this out, he is pointing out the reality that there is more than one way of hearing 
the Lord Jesus Christ. So you may be here this morning, and as I look around this room, you may be all listening to me and hearing the same words, but thinking different things. That's entirely possible. And so we need to see that there were people here who did not become disciples. So the first thing we find when we're thinking about how do people become disciples is that some people met with Jesus in a crowd. That's what we've got, haven't we? As the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, and, and Luke's really clever in the way he writes, isn't he? Pressed upon him. That gives an impression of the crowd, doesn't it? If you've ever been in a big crowd, uh, like a crowd at a rugby international match, sometimes you're just carried along by the crowd. You're not going quite where you want to go, but since the whole body seems to be going that way, you're pressed along with it. And it seems like this crowd was pressing Jesus, and he's going, having to step further and further back till he's almost paddling in the Sea of Galilee. And uh, there's this, so the, 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 the imagery is of a big crowd of people. And the other thing about crowds, of course, is it's so easy to get carried along with the spirit of a crowd. So we come into a church, and the people in the church, generally speaking, in our Christian churches, are nice people. And they like singing hymns. And because they sing with gusto, we begin to join in. And we find ourselves taken along. But we're really just in the crowd. We're not really there to worship God. I remember in one of my earlier days when I was working as a tax advisor, I had a client who was, um, he was uh, a wardrobe manager on film sets and I had to see him to deal with some business so he said well you, you'll just have to come up to Shepparton Studios because I'm working there and if you come early uh, like 7 o'clock in the morning it's a fair trek up from Maidstone by 7 o'clock we can spend half an hour together before we really, I, I really have to get working so that's what I did and um, of course you see one or two well-known actors and actresses and things like that at the studios. But what amazed me was that he, he, he was showing me this film set that he was responsible for, and uh, there was this crowd of people milling around. And I said, who's that lot over there then? And he said, oh, that's just the crowd. That's just the crowd. Of course, they were all the extras that fill up the pictures that we ultimately see in films or television screens. They're people who are in the film because they're part of the crowd, but they were not really of it. They play a part, but they're not really in the film. They don't appear in the credits. They don't get their name put up there. And although they may feel involved, they're not acknowledged as such by those who matter. The director just says, get the crowd on, and the crowd comes on and does their bit, and he's, get that crowd off. And off they go. But some people are like that in church, you know. They're not really part of what's going on. They're not really worshipping God. They've come along as part of the crowd. And I'm sad to say that I think that this is an attitude that's all too prevalent in churches. There are people who are members, even members of churches, 
who are actually no more than extras on the scene of the great work of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh yes, they're there when God's word is expounded. They were there when Jesus said to Peter, Peter, can I use your boat? Remember that if you read the Gospel of Luke, he had met Peter before. Peter had met Jesus before. So Jesus gets into the boat and Peter and his friends push it out just far enough offshore so that the crowd can't press right on him when he's trying to teach them. And he begins to teach them. He taught the people out of the ship. And those people were listening. And they felt like they were part of what was going on. And we're often like that in church. Especially we get some preachers that we particularly like. And then God's word begins to hit those personal tender spots in our conscience. And perhaps we don't listen so well. We don't like to be told that we have a problem with our pride. We think of ourselves as far from proud people. We think of ourselves as quite humble people. But often our humility is no more than the humility of that great Dickens character, Uriah Heep. I am an humble man. And everybody knew he wasn't humble at all. But it was a picture. And we don't like to be told by God's word that we're desperately wicked. We don't think of ourselves as desperately wicked. If we think of desperately wicked, we would think of that man who shot those children in school, wouldn't we? How terrible was that? How awful. But God says that everyone is desperately wicked. And sometimes the word of God actually turns us away. In John chapter 6, and verse 60, Jesus had been teaching some hard things. And we read, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And then later on in verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Those were the ones that were part of the crowd. They weren't really disciples. They called themselves disciples. They acted like disciples in some ways, and yet they weren't really. And so it does us good, you know, to remind ourselves that we need to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Because we can just be swept up with the crowd. And the terrifying thought is that on the judgment day, when all the world is brought face to face with Almighty God, you won't feel like you're in a crowd. You will feel like you're an individual and you're standing on your own before God 
because such will be the penetrating gaze of God, you won't even notice anyone else. And God will want to know what you did with his son. And it won't matter about what anybody else has to say because God will only want to know about you. And the only question he'll want to know is, did you bow the knee to my son knowing that you were desperately wicked and that you needed a savior? Did you come to him and trust him? And then there will be no time to do anything different. It will be too late. Today, is the day of salvation. Are you meeting Jesus in a crowd today? Are you standing back and not responding to his teaching? But then there were others there, weren't there? We're told about Simon, Peter. We know he was there. We know the sons of Zebedee were there. And no doubt others as well. And we can talk about meeting Jesus at a time of tiredness and despondency. There's Simon. He's been working all night. And he's, because he's a good fisherman, and his colleagues are good fishermen, having got back to shore in the morning, not having caught anything, Working all night. But rather than go to bed, what are they doing? They're on the beach cleaning their nets. Because they're professionals. This is what they do. And they're cleaning their nets and getting everything ready for the next night when they go fishing. And then Jesus appears and the crowd comes. And and they're swept up in that as well. And then Jesus says to them, I want you to launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft. And Simon Peter answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word I will let down the net. Well, can you imagine what it must have felt like for Simon Peter when Jesus said that to him? first of all think of it from a professional point of view Simon Peter and James and John were professional fishermen they didn't need a professional carpenter telling them how to fish that was the last thing they really needed what does a carpenter know about fishing they'd been working all night with no success not often get a fisherman tell you that he's caught nothing do you last thing a fisherman wants to say but that was true for them they must have been tired and dispirited they wanted to rest they wanted to sleep they didn't want to go fishing again especially when they knew that this was a rubbish time to go fishing and that was a rubbish place to go fishing and Jesus says this is what I want you to do oh 
They were not psychologically ready to take up his command and follow him on the face of it. Do you remember that hymn? You probably still sing it. I sing it now and again. Oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. Well, I suspect that that really summed up the feeling of Peter. But he says, I can't really see the point, but if you say so, I'll do it. And I don't think it was grudging obedience. I think this was being obedient when everything in his mind screamed, why do it that way? But because Jesus said it, he would obey it. And you see, we're reminded that Peter had had encounters with Jesus before. He'd seen the sick healed. He'd seen his own mother-in-law healed. Extraordinarily healed. Amazingly. And he knew that this Jesus was different and had authority. He'd heard him preach as one with authority. He'd heard him casting out devils as one with authority. His word had authority. And so Peter knew he needed to be obeyed. And he was going to obey it. And the question is, as a disciple, are you ready to obey the word of God? Do you give in to tiredness and despondency? Too tired to pray at home. Too tired to go out to the prayer meeting. Too tired to do a daily study of God's word. Too low in your spirit to speak a word for Jesus. Too tired to think, to use what you think of as your own time for the service of the one who gave his whole life to save you. There was a great Welsh preacher. His name was Thomas Charles. One of the greatest of Welsh preachers, many would say. God used him mightily. He died in 1814, so a long time ago. But uh, he was once due to go on a journey on a not very nice winter's day without buses or anything like that. If he was going to go, it was going to be on a horse. But he was due to preach somewhere. And he was having worries about going. This great man of God. And he knew there was another faithful man of God nearby, so he sent his servant to ask this man what he thought he should do to give him some advice, because I guess he thought to himself, well, if this man says, oh, no, 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 you don't want to go out in the rain on a day like this, you're far too important. You're, you've got much too much important work to do to take the risk. And uh, the man who he sent to sent this message back to him. Ask Mr. Charles if he is a master or a servant. If he is a master, he may do as he wishes. If he is a servant, he must do what his master wishes. And that's a question that we need to ask ourselves. Am I a master 
or a servant. Matthew Henry, writing about this passage, says, If sinners would just obey him, they would find all his promises sure. He never disappoints. He asks only that we have confidence in him, and he will give us every needful blessing. What a wonderful saviour Jesus is. What a great example Peter is. And it gets even stronger as we go on. Because <clears throat> we, we may meet with Jesus in a crowd. We may meet with him in fear and despondency. Uh, in, in, sorry, in tiredness and despondency. But also we, we must meet with him in fear. So Jesus tells Peter, put down the nets. And Peter does it. And they enclose such a great multitude of fishes that their net was breaking, and they beckoned to their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. So they came and filled both the ships, so they, they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he said, This is great, boys. We're made for life. We can get this catch of fish to shore. It's such an enormous catch. We'll make a load of money. We don't need to go fishing tonight. We can have a night off tonight and take it easy. No. No, that's not what the Bible says, is it? And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O oh Lord. He met Jesus in fear. He was astonished. And all that were with him at the draft of fishes which they had taken. And so was James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with him. The consequences for them of listening to Jesus and obeying him was, first of all, fear. Strange that, isn't it? Don't you think it, 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 it's odd that Luke should have recorded that? You might have expected amazement or even delight. But no, it was fear. But if you know your Bible, you wouldn't be surprised, surprised at that. Abraham feared God. Isaiah saw the glory of God and feared God. Throughout the scriptures we read that men and women who served God began with fear of the Lord. They were feeling that to stay in the presence of Jesus was death to them. It was the same experience that the Israelites had when Moses was called up to Mount Sinai and God said to them, tell them to come near. And they said, no, you go for us. Because they feared the Lord. But isn't it wonderful that Luke records that Jesus said to him, fear not. Fear not. That's the wonderful thing about the gospel that Jesus comes to us, and when he comes to us, inevitably we will recognize that we are desperately wicked and we need a savior. 
And some people who were in the crowd might by now have been backing away from the back of the crowd and disappearing off into the distance because they didn't want to hear this. But there were others and God was beginning a work in them and they were beginning to realize that this was true of them. And they were thinking about it. And there were still others like Peter who knew that they were sinful men and had bowed the knee to Jesus. Where are you on that line? Are you sort of hanging about the back waiting till you can get away from Jesus? Or are you beginning to realize that this is true? That even when Jesus does these amazing things, the point of them is not that we should be just amazed and think how wonderful it is, but that we might see that he is God and bow the knee before him. You need never fear that Jesus will reject you if you come to him in fear, if you come to him acknowledging that you're a sinner. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast him out. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Come to me. Come to me with all your sin. Come to me with all your weakness. Come to me with all your fears. Come to me with all your tiredness and your despondency. Come to me. And I'll deal with it. Have you come to him? I think that's the great question that comes out of what Peter went through here. Have you come to him? Because if you haven't felt that experience that Peter felt, then you should examine your heart to see whether you have come to him as the Savior and King. Well, who are the disciples? How do people become disciples? They come to Jesus and they bow down before him, acknowledging their sinfulness and trusting him. But then secondly and briefly, what do disciples do? Well, in a line, they meet with Jesus in submission to his will. They meet with Jesus in submission to his will. Here in verse 5, Simon is given, well, in verse 4, actually, Simon is given the command by Jesus, which he doesn't understand, which he maybe thinks he knows better than Jesus about. But then we find in verse 5, at thy word I will let down the net, because you say so, I will do it. And then in verse 11, and when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. You see, sometimes we have to recognize that we don't always know the right way to do things. It's very hard for us to do that. Because we're the sort of people who always think we do know what is right. But we have to learn that God knows what is right. Jesus knows what is right. 
And what God tells us to do is what we ought to do. And when Peter and James and John and the others obeyed what God told them to do, even though they thought it was the wrong thing to do, they were rewarded with this amazing catch. And the, re- the, the, the reaction to that was fear and following. So when you come to God in fear, acknowledging his holiness and your sin, that is not the end. Because after you have come to Jesus, in reality, for forgiveness and mercy, and he's taken you into his family, and he's brought you into his kingdom, you then have to follow him. And that's what the disciples did. They forsook all and followed him. See, they knew that there was only one place they wanted to be for the rest of their lives. They wanted to be with Jesus. They could be set up for life with this catch, but no, leave it. Just leave it and follow Jesus. Can you imagine that? They have this enormous catch, the biggest catch they've ever had in their life, and they leave it. Everything. The boats, the nets, the catch. Because they're going to follow Jesus, and Jesus isn't hanging around. He's got other places to go, and other people to see, and other places to preach the gospel. He's got a leper that he's going to cleanse. He's got a man with a ris- with an arm who he's going to heal in the synagogue. He's got a he's got a dodgy customs inspector that he he wants to be one of his followers, and he's going to call him. And all these things are going on, and he says to. Peter and James and John, follow me. And leaving everything behind, they followed him. Because Jesus said to them, you can forget about fish now. I'm going to use you to catch men. I wonder what he would say to us. Perhaps we we don't think with our jobs and our businesses that we've got anything to do. Perhaps we pigeonhole our Christianity into one little box and then our job in another box and then our family in another box and then our uh, our leisure time in another box. And, And Jesus has authority over our religious box, but not the others. Oh, no. When you become a Christian, everything comes under the control of Jesus. And do you live your life like that? What do disciples do? They make more disciples. That's what disciples do. They live in such a way that they will make more disciples. That's their aim in life. Whatever I do in my life as a Christian, I do it to show people that Jesus is worth following. A lot of people don't take any notice of me. A lot of people don't listen to me. A lot of people don't think much about the way I live. They might think I'm a bit of a boring, staid old character. But I'm living, if I'm a disciple, to show people what Jesus looks like. To show them that he's worth following. The Apostle Paul said, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss 
for the sake of Christ. Do you live your life like that? It's not to say that you have to give up all the other things. Not at all. You don't have to stop going to coffee mornings and things like that. But you go as a Christian. You don't have to stop going to work to do your job. You do it as a Christian. You live as a Christian. You show people what a Christian looks like. You might think to yourself, oh, I really envy those famous missionaries who gave up everything to go and serve Jesus. Just a minute. I'd like you to know that Jesus expects the same of you. Exactly the same. He may not show it in quite the same way, but he expects exactly the same. He expects you to forsake all and follow him. That's not to give it all away, but it is to subject it all to the rule of Jesus Christ and to live for his glory. And one day, Peter, who the Bible teaches us, went through all the experiences that we go through of success and failure as Christian people. One day, he stood up in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit had fallen upon him and he began to preach and oh what a harvest thousands and thousands of people converted and believing the gospel will you be committed to Jesus in your home in your school in your college in the office in the factory, at the coffee morning, down the post office, wherever, living for Jesus. He's first, and everything else we have is on loan from him, and we've got to use it for his glory. Well, something about discipleship from the word of God that challenges us to examine our hearts and ask, are we disciples? And am we, are we living like disciples for the glory of God? Amen. Well, we're going to sing together now. Number 528. Lovely hymn but perhaps reflects some of what we've spoken about this morning. O Christ, in thee my soul hath found, and found in thee alone the peace, the joy I sought so long, the bliss till now unknown. Now none but Christ can satisfy. None other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy. Lord Jesus found in the number 528. Christ in thee my soul has found and found in thee alone the peace and joy I sought so long till now unknown. 
Let me read some words from the Apostle Peter as he finished his second letter. You, therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest you also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen.